This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're coming to you remotely from the Latin American Studies Association Congress in Washington, D.C. this week. And the topic that's buzzing at this LASA Congress is Honduras. We'll have two interviews about politics, diplomacy, and this week's monumental gang truce in Honduras. But first, we go to our D.C. studios where Kurt Devine has more on the truce and our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Two of Latin America's most violent gangs announced a truce this week in Honduras, the nation with the world's highest murder rate. Members of the Mata Sabatrucha Trece, also known as the MS-13, and members from Barrio Diasiocho, or the 18th Street Gang, separately called for a joint ceasefire. They also committed to ending all street crime. A Mata Sabatrucha leader, who goes by the street name Mario, spoke to reporters from prison about the truce. We don't want any more violence. We don't want any more crimes. What we want to do is to get our members connected to work. I'm still a human being, and I want to work to support my children and all of our future children. Roman Catholic Bishop Romulo Emiliani assisted the negotiations. He called for the government to reform the prison system to help break the cycle of crime. Honduran President Porfirio Lobo expressed support for the truce. New research shows there's a shift in popular support for marijuana legalization in the United States. But support for such legalization poses complex domestic and foreign policy challenges. A reporter, Zach Cohen, was at the Brookings Institution in D.C. when the research results were unveiled. A new majority of Americans now support decriminalization of both the distribution and use of marijuana. Colorado and Washington State legalized recreational use of marijuana in November, and 18 states and the District of Columbia allow the use of medicinal marijuana. The shift of public opinion over the last eight years was so dramatic that scholars, like Bill Galston at the Brookings Institution, believe the support is here to stay as the younger generation begins to enter the public debate. There has been a strong shift towards one side of the debate that is unlikely to be reversed anytime soon. John Walsh at the Washington Office of Latin America says that reality could pose a problem to President Barack Obama as he continues to work with Latin American leaders to alleviate drug violence. He says while the U.S. political leaders oppose public support for marijuana legalization, the opposite is true in Latin America. The Organization of American States is exploring marijuana legalization as one option to reduce drug violence. They're going to continue to be very careful about what they say and when they say it. 72% of Obama's constituents agree that federal efforts to enforce marijuana prohibition laws cost more than they are worth. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen in Washington, D.C. We'll have a commentary on the OAS initiative on drug policy coming up later in the program. The next story features drugs and corruption with a Mexican dateline, but the new feature is a twist. Mexican officials have accused a Mormon woman from the U.S., a mother of seven, with smuggling marijuana. The Mexican military detained Gennaro Maldonado and accused her of attempting to hide seven pounds of marijuana under her bus seat. Maldonado's husband says Mexican judicial officials solicited a bribe of thousands of dollars from him after international media focused on the case, Mexican officials released Maldonado. She had spent about a week in detention. 
Investigators found a video that showed Maldonado did not have the marijuana when she boarded the bus, taking her back to the U.S. Two officials from the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela were shot at a strip club in Caracas. A brawl at the Antonea 2012 club left the two men with non-life-threatening injuries. Both men work in the embassy's defense attaché. A U.S. State Department official said there were no apparent political motivations for the shootings. In an unrelated development, Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, accused CNN in Espanol, the Spanish branch of the international news channel, of working to destabilize his government. CNN has rejected the accusations. Colombian officials reached a historic agreement on land reform with the nation's largest rebel group. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, negotiated in Havana with Colombian officials for integrated rural reform. The government agreed to redistribute millions of acres of illegal or underutilized land to displaced people. The land deal comes as the first of six points necessary for a full peace agreement. The Colombian government believes ending conflict with the FARC will attract international investors while boosting domestic social programs. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. As we heard earlier on the program, a historic truce regarding the Barrio Dieciocho gang, Mara, in Honduras and uh, MS-13. To help us sort through this truce and give us more background about gangs in Honduras, we have Professor Bob Brenneman of St. Michael's College in Vermont, the author of Homies and Hermanos, God and Gangs in Central America, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rick. Please tell us how you see this gang truce in Honduras, and is it as important as the headlines tell us? Wow, that is a really hard question. And I think it's the question of the hour, even for a lot of Hondurans. Um, I um, am a little surprised by the by this announcement and I, but I was also really surprised when a similar truce was announced in Salvador a year ago a little over a year ago um, but I'm even more surprised in Honduras in part because um, and and as I understand there are efforts toward well a tregua a truce has been signed I nevertheless my impression of the gang situation, the organizational situation of the gangs in Honduras is that they're less organized, less structured, less um, tightly structured than El Salvador. Throughout northern Central America, there, there is, gangs are still a somewhat local phenomenon. There, is, there are connections between the gangs, but they, some people imagine that they function in a very, very hierarchical, perfect um, auth authoritative structure a lot like a military or or guerrillas or something and I don't think that's the case anywhere but where it might be the closest to to a kind of vertical structure would be in El Salvador a lot less so in Guatemala and less so um, in Honduras and we should mention that those three countries the northern triangle countries of Central America are really where you spend a lot of time studying the gangs right that's true and um, I studied, I'd, you might say I studied the gangs from the ground level. Um, I was not trying to work out a perfect um, P3 
pyramid of who is in charge here. I was not looking at the gangs as much organizationally as um, the everyday life of what gang, being in a gang and leaving a gang in particular is like. Your book is all about the influence of religion on these gangs in Central America. And so is this part of the competition between evangelicals in this area and the Catholic Church, which is obviously much more traditional influence in Central America? That's a good question. And I think that one could say that it is, although I wouldn't say that the gang, that the churches, Catholic or Protestant, are doing this because they are consciously trying to demonstrate their legitimacy at the national level. Nevertheless, I think there is underlying these efforts, including an, a humanitarian concern on both parts, and a concern for the country, a, a desire to see uh, crime go down in the country um, through different kinds of interventions. I think the churches on both sides really, really, um, they do want to see, they do want to be able to do something and to be able to, they want to show that their faith and that their institutions can make a difference in the, in, on the most, uh, the topic of most concern to most Central Americans in Northern Central America today, which is crime and, and violence. And so this becomes an arena in which the two are consciously or not kind of um, jockeying to show that their um, religious mm, goods, if you will, um, are effective and are worthwhile and have value um, to society, not just spiritual value. You pointed out the risks for the Catholic Church and become a broker in this truce between these very violent street gangs, and MS-13 has been called the most violent gang in, in the world. But given the fact that the truce was announced in San Pedro Sula, some people say the most dangerous city in the world, and that Honduras has the worst murder rate in the world, isn't it time for some institution to step up and find some solution? Well, I think the Catholic Church and, and Bishop uh, uh, and, and the Bishop involved is uh, um, to be commended, I think, for giving it a shot. And I don't think um, one could not accuse him of being a Johnny-come-lately to this issue. He has been trying for a long time um, to work on issues of youth and uh, violence in his country. And so, personally, I, I see perhaps even a little more possibility for this truce. Um, if nothing else, because I see, at least, at least on the side of the capacity of um, the church to actually make a strong contribution, um, because uh, it's very indivi different individual we're talking about in Honduras than in um, El Salvador. Let me just ask this, what, what haven't we touched on that you think is important for our audience to know? Okay, I guess I, one of the things that I have started to, I, I wanted to stress, two things I wanted to stress recently, is that it's important, although the gangs are an, are an important contributor to violence in Central America, they are by no means the only contributors to the very high rates of uh, homicide 
in Central America, especially in Honduras. If you look at the uh, homicide rates in Honduras, San Pedro Sula, the uh, region that San Pedro Sula is a part of, is, does not even have the highest homicide rate in the country, and Tegucigalpa is like fifth or sixth down in terms of states' uh, homicide rates. The highest is La Ceiba, uh, um, Atlantida. Uh, that, that region has the highest homicide rate. And it's, I think the answer is clear that uh, the reason for this is that the drug violence is really the single largest contributor to uh, violence in Honduras. I don't know if it's the same can be said about uh, El Salvador, but clearly in Honduras and probably in Guatemala as well. The gangs contribute violence, but not at the same rate that, um, um, that the drug cartels uh, and the transportistas do in those two countries. Um, in addition, I think it's important to point out that even gang violence, what we call gang violence, is not always necessarily only um, uh, gang-driven or gang-war-driven. And I'm trying to make this point uh, increasingly that we, sh we need to stop thinking only of the supply of gang violence and start thinking of the demand for gang violence. And I'll give you an example. In uh, Honduras, in, in uh, La Ceiba region, I interviewed a, uh, a young man who had been in the gang for quite a while, but then had sort of graduated out of the gang. He, was, he had sort of made a career, made a name for himself as a uh, capable, as capable with a gun, let's put it that way, during his time in the gang. But eventually he moved out of the gang and moved to another city. Um, and he started, but the, his reputation as being capable with a weapon uh, followed him and he started getting uh, requests from non-gang members to um, commit killings, homicides. And he told this to me. And he said, he said, you wouldn't believe the kind of people that came to ask me to um, conduct a hit for them. He said, respectable Hondurans um, came to me to do their dirty work for them, and I did it, he said. Now, this is a young man who, by all accounts, including his, but others as well, killed quite a number of people during his time. He no longer is engaged in that. He spent time in prison, and afterwards he became a, a Pentecostal Christian, and he's, that's the last I saw of him. He was doing well in that uh, religious career. But the important thing is here, of those uh, homicides that he committed, especially later in his life, even though he committed them as having, he, he was a member of a gang, were those gang homicides? Or were they homicides um, uh, driven by the demand of a Honduran people who was not getting justice through their particular justice system? So if we want to do something about gang violence in Central America, we need to look at the weak criminal justice structure, the, the weak court system, really, and it's not just about police, that we need more police. We need, that Central Americans need to have a place where they can go to look for justice, and they don't have that, and so some of them look to gang members, but uh, I think a lot of, I think Central Americans need to own up to their own part in the gang violence, and so that's why I want to talk about gang demand, demand for gang violence, not just the supply of gang violence. Thank you, Bob Brenneman of St. Michael's College in Vermont, the author of Homies and Hermanos, God and Gangs in Central America, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It was a pleasure. We'll have more from the Latin American Studies Association Congress in Washington, D.C. coming up. Stay with us. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the U.K. to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. 
Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. We're visiting today with Dr. Jorge Heine of the Basile School of International Affairs, Wilfred Laurier University in Canada. He is the co-editor of the new book, The Oxford Handbook of Modern Diplomacy, which he will debut here in Washington, D.C. next week at American University. He is also the author of the America's Quarterly article, Latin America Goes Global, which is the theme of their spring issue. Welcome to Latin Pulse, Dr. Heine. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for the opportunity. Here at the Lhasa Congress, you have uh, put forth a particular presentation about Honduras and how the Obama administration maybe hit the shoals when it came to Honduras and ch it, that changed its policies toward Latin America. Can you can you tell us a little bit about sure. your, your point of view on sure. Honduras? Of course. Um, I was puzzled by the following. A lot of people had great expectations about uh, President Obama's policy towards Latin America when he was elected. His first six months on Latin America were extremely encouraging as well. Yet, most people would say that then something happened, something went amiss. And what I posited today and I put forth in my paper is that what happened was the Honduras crisis, which for seven months dominated the inter-American agenda and in which, it seems to me, the Obama administration failed to come through with what it had promised it would do in Latin America. And, and what was that promise? Well, the promise was to listen to Latin America, to work with Latin American regional organizations, to work with Latin American governments, to look for collective solutions to the hemisphere's problems. And suddenly we have this uh, coup that happened in Honduras, the first coup, military coup in Latin America in uh, 20 years. Uh, and although at first the Obama administration condemned the coup and said it would do the needful to uh, restore the situation ex ante, in the end uh, it didn't happen. And that generated considerable disappointment in the region. And so has the Obama administration managed to come back from this disappointment? He, he's recently had this trip to Mexico and Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is this a fresh start, new new term, fresh start in Latin America? Well, I, I certainly hope it is. Uh, we're also hearing that um, Vice President Biden will take up a more significant role in relations with uh, Latin America. I will say the following. We shall have an early test of this. Uh, next week is the uh, General Assembly meeting of the OAS. Uh, there is uh, a question whether Secretary of State John Kerry will attend the meeting. This is a meeting that is held once a year. I don't think all foreign ministers from the Americas gather at it. I don't think it is too much to ask for the U.S. Secretary of State to attend a once-a-year meeting of all his counterparts in the hemisphere. Uh, so we shall see. I think if uh, Secretary Kerry were to attend, that would tell us really that there is a fresh start. If he does not, uh, well, we could draw the appropriate consequences. And perhaps if Vice President Biden were there, would that be well, a signal? Obviously, if Vice President Biden were to go, that would 
also be a very encouraged seeker needed to say. When it comes to Honduras, you're not just critical of the Obama administration, but also critical of the organization of American states, the OAS. Yes. Well, uh, I would say the following. The OAS took a leading role in the initial reaction against what happened in Honduras on 28 June 2009. Uh, it uh, condemned the coup. There was a, a vote in the permanent council and then there was a resolution of the General Assembly that suspended Honduras. The Secretary General took a very uh, strong stance. He visited Honduras but did not meet with uh, Strongman Micheletti, the head of the new de facto government. Some people said that the OAS took too strong a role against the new government and that, that stood in the way of it playing a role in brokering a solution. I disagree. This is what you are supposed to do. You are supposed to condemn things that like a coup and the more time goes by, the more you are helping the incumbents, in this case uh, Micheletti and his followers. So I don't quite buy that line. So you, your argument then would be that U.S.-Latin American relations actually start with U.S. support for the OAS, for the Organization of American States? No, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the OAS is the uh, one Pan-American regional political body that has been around the longest and it plays a very important role. What I'm saying is that because the OAS played such a leading role in trying to solve the Honduras crisis, it has been getting a very bad rap in Washington. Now, my argument is that if the United States government, either the executive or the Congress, wants to undermine the OAS, it seems to me that is not a very fruitful approach. The OAS, you know, as I said, is based in Washington, and it is the one body that brings together, at the political level, all countries in the Americas. So for the United States to undermine it, it's, it's very strange. This is seen as something very odd in many countries in Latin America, where the OAS has traditionally been seen with some critical eyes, precisely because it is seen as too close to the interests of the United States. <laughs> so, you know, it's a very odd situation. Is this why the OAS responds to Paraguay and the coup in Paraguay was very different than the coup in Honduras? That's right. And, and it seems to me there's a sort of learning curve here. And uh, the response of the OAS was very muted because, you know, basically uh, it had learned that it was very dangerous <laughs> to be too forthright in the defense of democracy in the Americas. And what was even more fascinating was the response of the State Department that, if not fully endorsing the very questionable way in which President Lugo was removed, uh, basically called for uh, not doing anything and going along with it, which, again, I found very disturbing. That would be Fernando Lugo down in, in, in Paraguay. And, and so the Mercosur actually had the stronger response. That's right. What happened then, of course, is that given the lack of response of the OAS, uh, Mercosur stepped in. And Mercosur, in fact, applying the democracy clause, suspended 
Paraguay from membership in Mercosur, which was heavily criticized in many circles in the United States. Uh, but that is what they did. And they said, we're going to suspend Paraguay's membership and until they hold elections. And they now held elections, and Paraguay is now going to be readmitted. But it seems to be important to convey the message that if you do not stand up and you do not defend democracy in the Americas, there is a price to pay. What else from your paper and your presentation do you think it's important for our audience to understand? Well, what I think is very important to understand is that you know, the OAS is the premier inter-American organization. If in Washington, which where it is based, it is not supported, it seems to me there's a real problem. And people in Latin America will start to question themselves whether, in fact, the OAS uh, is really serving uh, any purpose. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Jorge Heine of the Basili School of International Affairs, Wilfred Laurier University of Canada, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Earlier this month, the Organization of American States, the OAS, released its year-long study of drug problems and policy in the Americas. It is an impressive document, amply fulfilling the mandate of the hemisphere's heads of state who are seeking to curb the relentless escalation of drug-related criminal violence and corruption. The document, generally called the Insulsa Report, after the OAS Secretary General, is divided into two sections. The first is a wide-ranging analysis of the problems associated with the production, distribution, and use of illicit drugs. The second maps out the policy choices potentially available to governments and the consequences of pursuing each of them. The report has its flaws. Most egregiously, it panders to some OAS members and excludes any serious assessment of the anti-drug strategies currently in force. At a time when most analysts and here for more of the U.S. public believe current policies are not working and may cause more headaches than they cure. Moreover, the report offers no recommended courses of action or even a menu of alternatives. But the Insulsa report is an exceptionally careful and creative appraisal of the problems connected to illegal drugs. The material is well organized, the findings are grounded in science and evidence, and the use of data, always a challenge when dealing with illicit activities, is appropriately cautious. But the report's four scenarios are its most notable product. Indeed, this is where to find those missing recommendations. Three of the scenarios map out largely favorable outcomes for countries adopting a variety of new, forward-looking policies and programs. Scenario one focuses on reform of the criminal justice system. The second scenario explores the strategic choices available to governments, including legalization of some illicit drugs. 
Scenario three examines the institutions and arrangements needed to assist drug victims, drug-dependent individuals, crime-ridden communities, victims of crime or violence, youthful criminal offenders, and the like. Scenario four, however, is the most significant. Understatedly called disruptive, it maps out the consequences of sticking with current policies. What results is that almost every country ends up worse. This scenario should have introduced the report, explains what motivated the exercise, why it is important, and why it is critical for every country of the Americas to pay attention to the findings. Thanks for joining us this week for our special remote program from the Latin American Studies Association, the LASA Congress in Washington, D.C. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. Or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>